This is Ryan Dawson of the Anti-Neocon Report. With me is Marwa Osman. She is a PhD candidate out of Beirut. You may have seen her on Press TV or Russia Today or the Ron Paul Institute, which is where I picked you up. And uh, I believe you gave a lecture in Sydney right after I left. So she does uh, a circuit and speaks at universities as well. Now, I'm going to let her talk a lot in a minute, but I just want to run through a quick history here because we're going to be talking about Saad Hariri, which did this very odd stunt of going to Saudi Arabia, saying he's going to resign. No, he's not going to resign, and, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, he is the son of a former prime minister, too, Rafiq Hariri, who was murdered in 2005, and his murder was a bit of a mystery with competing conspiracy theories. One side blamed the Mossad, the other side blamed Hezbollah, and neither one really made a lot of sense. Uh, it's called Who Knows the Nose, not to be morbid, but there was the nose left over from the car bomber that took him out, as well as his security guards. So this is what happens politically. Syria had been involved in Lebanon, occupying Lebanon, not in the sense of like occupying Palestine, like more like the U.S. presence in South Korea. They wanted him there. Brutal civil war, five-party civil war since 1975. They were there for 25 years. Suddenly, the prime minister is assassinated, and immediately, they blame the Syrians. No evidence, but it was enough uh, political clout to get the Syrian military to move out of Lebanon. Of course, Israel is trying to get their one-on-one -on -one match, which happens the next year in 2006. So they have this conspiracy theory. You got an open mic with George Bush talking to Tony Blair, saying, well, you just need to get the Syrians to have hell Hezbollah to knock this shit off and it's over. See, the irony is that what they need to do is get Syria to get Hezbollah to stop doing this shit. It's very clear what the neocons wanted. They used it all as a pretext. When all the dust settled, there was no evidence that Syria was involved in the car bombing at all. Actually, the bomber was probably from Northern Africa because they still have a piece of his nose and he was black. So, anyway, all that happens. So that is the father of Saeed Hariri, who is the current prime minister who went down while the perfume princes were all battling each other in this real-life Game of Thrones in Saudi Arabia. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to sort out what's been going on in Saudi Arabia, what their aims are in Lebanon. Uh, and, of course, if anybody thinks Israel is looking for a rematch, I don't think that's going to happen as bad as an ass-beating they got in the first war. Even without the Lebanese military lifting a finger, even without the Syrian presence there, and just a one-on-one -on -one with Hezbollah, they got wrecked because they're not used to fighting people who can do more than throw rocks at them. So welcome to the program. Sorry you had to listen to that mouthful. I just wanted to bring people up to speed if they didn't know. <laughs> you, you can add anything to that if you like. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on your show. And I, I think that was like – it went through a flashback in my head and you were just saying everything so fast and it's just surreal, the the, <laughs> the entire situation in Lebanon. I can understand it, but it can be confusing to other people, but at sometimes we just sit – like just look at one another and say, how did this happen? But the major thing in, in Lebanon is that it, which allows such a thing to happen is the actual system of governance. The system of governance that was put there after the civil war, which called the Ta'af Accord. The Ta'af Accord, unlikely to what people think, because the word Ta'if actually means sectarian, but it's because it was made inside of the Ta'if region in Saudi Arabia. That's why it was called the Ta'if Accord. They all went to a Ta'if in Saudi Arabia, which is the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, which is now being bombarded. Al-Awamiya East, uh, we spoke, maybe you have touched about that when Saudi Arabia was actually cracking down its own people in the eastern part of the country. I'm sorry if you're hearing some voices, that's my two-year-old, she's 
playing. Well, that's fine. Uh, so basically, uh, after after that, thank you. So after that, uh, after the end of the civil war, which was early, very early 90s, uh, we saw the re the regime that was taking control of Lebanon. It was actually the same people who were infighting in, in, in the civil war. Hence, there needed some sort of a of a military presence that could deter uh, any sort of a new civil war that could be ignited and then hence there was the Syrian uh, presence which was there not not since the Taif Accord, it was there since the 1982 which was the uh, uh, Israeli invasion on, on Beirut. We needed someone to help us and the Syrians were there for help. Now exactly what you said was uh, in 2005 was with, with no evidence we saw that uh, the killing of uh, uh, the late Prime Minister uh, Rafi al-Hariri was the father of Saad al-Hariri and just less than a year later we had the 2006 war which Israel calls the second Lebanon war because they have somewhere in their mind that there might be a third but I don't think that they are really I mean onto something here but what what happened later on uh, since 2006 on between the civil war and the 2006 war Hezbollah was able to liberate Lebanon Lebanon was under occupation we, we were literally like Gaza so Hezbollah, with the people fighting within Hezbollah, which are the people from the society, this is also what the Western world doesn't really understand. It's actually people who are living in the society who have a second job, which is fighting against the enemy. So they were able to liberate the land. They were able to kick out, literally, like, literally kick out the Israeli occupation from Lebanon. We still have two very small villages uh, which are conjoined with uh, Syria that are still under Israeli occupation, which are Shabbat Farms and uh, the Kfarshuba Hills, but they are still under occupation, so we, we do uh, legitimately need uh, resistance still, and even if we liberate the entire land, Israel is still there, so the risk is still there. So what happened in 2006, it was literally Israel going crazy because they couldn't wait for the uh, Syrian army to leave Lebanon because they thought, well, there's an army with all the artillery they have, they are leaving, now is the time to bombard Hezbollah and take it out. They didn't uh, have the correct uh, calculations, if you will. After that, uh, we had a couple of years of very uh, chaotic, uh, uh, intense political uh, situation inside of Lebanon, and then we were hit by the beginning of 2011 with the so-called Arab Spring which started throughout the Arab world, but eventually hit Syria, and you know the rest. I'm glad you called After it that, I of fully course, it's, it's the Arab yeah. stink. <laughs> it's a stink. It's not even a spring. So what happened when it hit Syria, everybody knows it, and the... Uh, we had uh, Hezbollah getting involved to help the Syrian brothers who once helped them by providing them with weaponry against Hezbollah, against uh, uh, Israel. We had Iran also get involved because they have an alliance to, to defend one another. We had also uh, eventually uh, Russia, also the Russian Air Force helped a lot in liberating uh, Syria. So this new coalition gave a push for a new axis in the region, which by default gave Hezbollah more uh, expertise on the ground. They were fighting new set of enemies, which are the Takfiri terrorists, which are not a, a conventional army. It was very tough at the beginning, but then they got the hand of it. We had we have more than 2,500 uh, martyrs from Hezbollah alone. So that's that's a, that's a lot for a population of less than 3 million or at least 3 million. So we did pay a lot uh, of sacrifice, but we did 
did liberate, help our Syrian brothers liberate their land, and we did liberate our land as well, because if, if people don't know, Lebanon was also, parts of Lebanon were also occupied, the uh, eastern, the northeastern part of Lebanon were occupied by Nusra and Daesh, both by ISIS and Nusra factors, and Hezbollah, with the Lebanese army earlier this summer, uh, were able to uh, eliminate them. So it was a very fruitful year. Everything was going as planned. At the beginning of, of the year, we also had the election of our new president, which is uh, President Michel Aoun, which is, uh, lately has proven to be the perfect man to be in his position to get us all through the, uh, th out of this uh, conundrum, of this new political conundrum, which, is, which was uh, launched by Saudi Arabia. So Everything was going as planned. Syria was getting liberated. Lebanon was signing new laws, electoral laws, new laws to uh, protect um, women. We had new laws to uh, start uh, giving, like raising the salaries of the army and the people who work in the uh, Lebanese official institutions, which is very important and very much needed for these people. Everything was going actually better than expected. Just suddenly, out of absolutely nowhere, Saad al-Hariri is on Al-Arabiya, giving his resignation. Not a single human in Lebanon or even outside the Lebanese border was like, what? What just happened? We had no idea what was going on. I, I remember that. It was November 4th. It was a Saturday. We were preparing to go out because Saturdays and Sundays uh, are, are, are uh, weekends in Beirut uh, because it's different in the Arab world. But we do have a Saturday and Sunday as a week weekends and we were preparing to go out and I just received the breaking news that Salah Hadid resigned. At first, I thought that someone is pranking me. I'll be very honest. I was, why would he, re he was singing, Hala bil Khamis. He was singing just two days ago with a video on board the plane coming back to Lebanon, singing and dancing with the people on board. It was very happy because on Monday, that was, he returned on, on, uh, to Lebanon on Wednesday because on Monday, he was supposed to be signing the new oil deals or the new, uh, bids that would allow uh, oil companies to come and start drilling for oil in Lebanon, which is very important for the Lebanese economy. And he was very happy that it's happening in his uh, uh, term. Just two days later, Saleh Hariri flew back. We, I did not even know that he was in Saudi Arabia. I did not follow that little tiny detail that he was summoned back to Saudi Arabia for something, for some reason no one knows. I just on Al Arabiya and Saudi Arabia, he's resigning. It was shocking. No one had a, a decent explanation even the the i mean the felt i mean we you know in lebanon there are rivalries in politics and there are alliances even his allies they were even shocked the future movement the movement that he is the leader of the future movement block they were all shocked two days later because the same day there was the the uh, 11 princes getting detained more than 200 uh, saudi businessmen getting detained so everything started it's like a piece of puzzle we start because you cannot get news out of saudi arabia because if you are a journalist you i think you can get beheaded there i don't know what's the law there but the point is you cannot go there and get information you cannot ask anyone for information you would get detained so we were waiting to hear on, on, on what is going on, and Twitter was a very vital uh, tool for us to learn or to get pieces of the puzzle. Thank God for that. Yeah, a lot so of the stations in Lebanon listening. are Saudi-run, right? The main, the main televised, the, what? the main TV stations for not, news. Not the main, but the most popular, if you will. It's most not, the, but the most popular because. Yeah, but like MTV and LBC, they are funded by Saudi Arabia. So they started also having uh, on their shows people like Tamir Sabhan, who, by the way, is still no show. 
since the day that Saad al-Hariri left Saudi Arabia, he was kicked out of his position, but no one was talking about it. Tamar al-Sabhan, who is the uh, Minister of Gulf Affairs in Saudi Arabia, was kicked out of his position because after threatening Lebanon for two uh, weeks, actually it was a week and a half, literally threatening Lebanon and saying Lebanon is now in a state of war against Saudi Arabia and we are going to bomb you, we're going to send our bombers, they are now in Cyprus. I was like, dude, just calm down. Who do you think you are? And then one and a half a week later, after the French president visited uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, the French foreign minister after that, two days after that, also visited Saudi Arabia, we saw Saad al-Hariri leaving there with his wife and one of his sons. And then his son and his wife went back to Saudi Arabia. I don't know why. And then he came to uh, back to Lebanon after almost two weeks. He came uh, on the night on the eve of uh, the Independence Day, November 22nd. So it's um, from November 4th to November 22nd. We had no idea what was happening to our uh, prime minister, why he was summoned there, what happened there, why he was uh, coerced into uh, going on uh, a, a, a not a live, even not, it's not, it wasn't even a live feed, it was a recorded uh, video by Al Arabiya to go out and say, uh, I'm resigning because of that and this, because of Hezbollah and Iran. And then he comes back. They sent back a couple of his bodyguards holds, as well, he, right? He's present. Excuse me? Like they sent back a couple of his bodyguards. Like, why are his bodyguards coming back to Lebanon and he's not? They sent them, uh, the bodyguards were sent back. When he was summoned to go to Saudi Arabia, he had only four people with him. They uh, sent back two of them, and these two of them gave a lot of information, but at the same time were afraid to talk much about it because they were afraid that something would happen to Saad al-Hariri. But at least the least that could be said that these two bodyguards who, who came back to Lebanon, the thing that they uh, they like positively said happened was they had no phones at the time that they landed on the uh, on on board uh, when the plane landed. Uh, people were on board, people from the security agencies in Saudi Arabia, they took their phones, they took their possessions, and they were treating them as if they were prisoners. They were all shocked. They had no idea what was happening. They took him to his house. He still had no idea what was happening until uh, the, late that night, he was summoned to Ben Salman and the Mohammed Ben Salman, who was uh, told what was happening, which we still don't know in details. But the thing is, there was this, this um, I don't know if we can call it credible or not, but the least that I could say is every time he tweets, Two days later, it happens to be correct. And I'm talking about Mujtahid. Mujtahid is supposedly a Twitter account on uh, on uh, the Twitter application uh, or uh, uh, on social media. He's also found on Facebook by the same name, Mujtahid. And what he does is he's supposedly one of the princes who are... Uh, on the opposition side, and he's not inside of Saudi Arabia, but he has informants. And what he said um, late on Saturday at, at, at thing 8 p.m. Beirut time, he started tweeting the story of Saad al-Hariri. And what he said was Saad al-Hariri was summoned be directly because of the purge that is going on inside of Saudi Arabia, because Saad Hariri is a Saudi, he has, he's a, he has a Saudi nationality, nationality, and he was summoned to resign in order to get rid of his uh, diplomatic immunity, and he was told to get all his billions out of Europe, because Saad Hariri, we all know that his uh, company, Saudi Arabia, inside of Saudi Arabia, was bankrupt, and he owes $9 billion to uh, Saudi Arabia, but he uh, announced, his, announced his bankruptcy, and they couldn't do anything about about it. But uh, the thing is, Al-Hariri family, they have billions of dollars in Europe. They are most one of the most wealthiest families in the Middle East. So they asked him to bring the, 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 the billions and pay 
uh, as some sort of a bail for him to get out of the jail that they were putting him in with his family. And uh, at first he, he was confused and he thought that he had no choice. And then he started meeting with the U.S. Uh, ambassador in uh, Saudi Arabia and then with the uh, French ambassador in Saudi Arabia. And they both were assuring him that they would not allow this to happen and that uh, they, they, they would very much appreciate if he doesn't speak about this because this would put them in a very bad position with the regime inside of Saudi Arabia. This is all mushtahed. I cannot confirm the credibility, but every time this man tweets, two days later, it's the right thing. So what happened next was that Saad al-Hariri um, decided not to abide by what, by what bin Salman did, and he decided to actually uh, uh, turn the table on, on bin Salman, turn positions on him, and tell him that if you don't allow me to leave, I am going to leak out that you actually have me in jail. And that would cause an, uh, a wave whether in the Middle East or even abroad, because also Saad al-Hariri has a French nationality. I don't know how many passports he still has, but he is also a French national. That's why we saw the French president flying all the way to Saudi Arabia to help him, because he's a French national. And that's what Mujtahid is saying, that Saad al-Hariri uh, uh, actually uh, this time coerced bin Salman to let him go or else he will talk about what happened. And basically Salman uh, offered that it will be a win-win situation by Saad al-Hariri not saying anything and by Mohammed bin Salman not asking him to pay any more money. But we still have the family of Saad al-Hariri inside of Saudi Arabia. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if they are there with their free will or not. I have no idea. No one can tell uh, except Saad al-Hariri himself and he's not talking about it. Uh, but what I can say is that he was definitely put under house arrest and was coerced to resign in Saudi Arabia because the minute he landed in Lebanon, the, the immediate second, the first morning, which was Independence Day, he went to the presidential palace and he announced there that he uh, he just, uh, he took back his resignation. I mean, what kind of a man that who would resign on TV where millions of people, literally millions, local, regional and international people watched him saying it's because of Hezbollah and because we want to cut the hand of Iran in the region. And then the second he comes back to Lebanon, he says, I'm taking that back. And he welcomes everyone. And we saw the picture of him taking the, uh, what we call the uh, uh, the congrats for the Independence Day with the Iranian ambassador with him practically hugging the man. So something happened and Mujtahid might actually, Mujtahid's story might be the most plausible story uh, so far because we, we were all guessing that it has to do with the money because $9 billion is not a, like, it's a huge number, and if he really owes it to Saudi Arabia, that number is nothing compared to what now Al-Walid bin Talal is being coerced to pay or uh, uh, Mohammed uh, um, bin, uh, bin Abdullah is, is being coerced to pay or all the other businessmen. We have more than 9,000 accounts, bank accounts that have been frozen in Saudi banks. The banks are going crazy. They don't know how to react with this. It's confusing for them. It's It would stop their uh, their, trans, their daily transactions. So uh, we have princes that have been killed. Prince uh, uh, Abdullah, who is who is the very best friend of Saad al-Hariri, he was killed because there was an exchange of fire and he died. And then you have the other prince who was trying to flee the country with a helicopter and his helicopter was shot down. So it's crazy la-la land over there, definitely. But Mujtahid's story is the most plausible one so far. So that's basically what I could say about the Saad al-Hariri. 
it's a curious why once he's safe in Lebanon, he couldn't tell the whole story unless they had at least something partial on him too, like the billions he needed to pay back to just to help people get their head around what a billion is. Cause I don't think any of us can imagine how, how much money that is. If you took a million seconds, that's about 11 and a half days. A billion seconds is over 31 years. And that's the type of money you're talking about. And the, this kind of plan to kidnap a prime minister and then record him saying he's going to resign, that, that the level of stupidity, and then let him go back to that that has to be hatched by the type of brain that is used to no one ever saying no. Like the type, a billionaire, people just, you're surrounded by yes men and they just, oh yeah, that sounds good. I mean... The level of stupidity behind this, this isn't like a CIA or a Mossad or a KJB plot. This is just a, like total amateur hour. Um, somebody that True. thinks, well, if somebody gets on my bad side, we'll just kill them or something. Like, this isn't a. No, look, the thing, thing is, we had a joke now in Lebanon. We have a joke going on uh, in Lebanon is that we have. Uh, uh, we have uh, saddened Quentin Tarantino because our scenario is, is way better than whatever he can actually write for his next movie. Because what happened is exactly what you're saying. You can you, say, you look at it and you say it's stupidity. We look at it and say it is beyond logical. It is someone who thinks that he is above the law, that he is above the people, and he is 32 years of age, for Christ's sake. I mean, how old is he really? He, he's, he doesn't have the experience. He has absolutely no uh, relations, good relations relations with anyone for that matter except Trump and Kushner. Well, he's very best friends with them because he paid them $450 billion. But what I'm talking about is the fact that who are the consultants of this man? Is he really that much of a crazy lunatic that he's taking all the decisions by himself? Doesn't he have any real experts who could tell him just breathe? What you're doing is very bad for yourself for your own kingdom. You are breaking that kingdom's code because the code says al-Saud in the reign and the Wahhabis ideology in the religion. And now you're breaking that and then you broke the other code of actually arresting and killing your own cousins who, by the way, uh, have the ability to rally up more than 10 million Saudi residents behind them because they are the most wealthiest, uh, they are the wealthiest, the, the most prominent um, sheikhs. A sheikh is, is a person, it does not, not, not necessarily being a, a religious one, but a leader of a tribe. And they are all connected. Every one of them has like three, four, five, I don't know, six wives. And it, they are all from very important tribes. These tribes, it's the tribal system that actually uh, controls Saudi Arabia. So you are, you're messing with that system in a way that no one has ever tried before, and you still think that the results will be in your favor. That is the definition of stupidity. I don't know what he's thinking, why he's thinking it, and at the same time, he's taking the lives of thousands of humans while the world watches in Yemen. It is horrific. It is beyond words. It is a holocaust. People are not daring to say it. It is a holocaust. It's probably tens of thousands now starving, starving to death and getting cholera and you're killing children. And tens of thousands. It's, it's, it's what the UN has reported. The UN has reported that it's 10,000 women, men and child. The number is definitely incorrect. By the end of 2016, we had a number from the Ministry of Health inside of Yemen, and they said it was 27,000. From that day, 
Two weeks later, a report was issued by the UN that says every 10 minutes there's a child dying inside of Yemen because of malnutrition. They're not even talking about the bombardment because to every 10 minutes, one child, you do the math and tell me how many are dying per month and then add them to what the UN is actually saying and not what the ministry is saying and you would still have more numbers. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying even the admitted numbers is in the tens of thousands, plural which could be up to 90,000. Um, it's a horrible no one the, the blockade and then the U.S. is doing the refueling missions and supplying not only the U.S., the U.K. as well are supplying uh, Saudi with the weaponry. They had to find some theater of war for the useless F-35 and 22, which wouldn't work in any real theater. And, and the Saudis can't even fly I'll, I'll tell you, look, I'm not... I'm, I'm not really uh, surprised by the stance of the US and the UK, but I'm very much surprised by the stance of Brazil. Brazil is still selling those bombs to uh, uh, Ben Salman, to Saudi Arabia, that they are using to bomb civilians, and Brazil knows it, and they are still sending. This is where I'm shocked. I mean, how could you do that? And you say that you are with the axis of resistance. How could you do that? They're not, and the U.S. is getting that recycled petrodollar. They get some benefit. The U.K. is really just doing it because the U.S. told them to do it. <laughs> uh, it's sickening what's happening in Yemen, and there's this isn't this didn't start back in 2011. There's been an on again, off again war with Yemen and Saudi Arabia since the 60s, uh, but I don't don't want to. Spend too much. I don't want to do another quick rant about. Hey, let me tell you tell you about the DRY and all that. So we'll just we'll let that be. But it's disgusting. There is a bill in the U.S. Congress to end the refueling missions for Saudi Arabia, and it was against the War Powers Act. But the uh, committee members there uh, really gutted it, and so they're battling now. Walter Jones, my congressman, is actually trying to to put, get a floor vote on that, you know, and even if it fails, I think it'll be a good litmus test because you'll be able to say, you know, the public will be able to hold them accountable and say, why did you vote yes to Saudi Arabia? Because a lot of them will do hot air politics where they're like, oh yeah, the evil Saudis, they sponsor Al Qaeda, blah, blah, but they still give them money, you know, but they always do it in a void yeah. vote. So this is forcing them and we're probably not going to win, but it's going to force them to have to like, take a side and you know have that on record so it's not a worthless endeavor so that's something happening in the u.s right now uh why do you think uh the perfume princes are being targeted by this maniac like what is what is the gain it, I, mean, I can't get my head around it. it just seems like such a stupid plot like it the, uh <laughs> his advisors like you said they may be eight-year-olds or something said like <laughs> Well, what happened, it was said that Mohammed bin Salman is trying to collect uh, a total of equal or above $11 billion from uh, those princes alone, and then collect some more from the 200 plus businessmen who were also arrested uh, and, uh, and put under house arrest. And I don't know what, what's happening to them right now. So he's trying basically to... Um, well, I don't know how to call it, if they stole the money and he's stealing their money or can you actually steal or are they really corrupt? Because if you're a prince, then how can someone buy you? You already own everything. Yeah. So I mean, Hariri basically, was I don't know what's, what's so the crime. there. Yeah. But, but, but what the thing is, if I you mean, look like, at what, what has been happening. Excuse me? I was saying, like, when they're saying corruption charges, the embezzlement charges on Hariri, I understand, like, okay, that's a specific crime, embezzlement, but you're talking about, like, yeah. nothing. I mean, 
the what the princes are doing, what yeah, the government yeah. does, and you're like, talking that about is criminal. Yes, and you're talking about people like Al Walid, but I'm not saying that they are good people or, or they they did not steal the wealth of, of Al Hijaz, of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. They did. All this money belongs to the people of the Arabian Peninsula. It does not belong to Al Saud. That's something that everyone agrees on. But I'm talking about people whose net worth, like Al Walid bin Talal, is more than $18 billion. Why would he want his money? I mean, Al-Wadid bin Talal could like pay any amount of money for Muhammad bin Salman. But the thing is, since the purge, which began with the coup beginning 20 summer of 2017, when Muhammad bin Salman actually had a coup against his own uh, cousin, uh, Muhammad bin Nayef, who was then the crown prince, and he took them over and then Muhammad bin Nayef for some reason just disappeared. We have no idea where he is right now, if he's even still alive or not, because certain reports are saying he isn't, he's been hospitalized. We don't know why. But uh, he, took the, he took him out, and we heard a lot of voices who were against this move. What She's you were too. saying, there's a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino or George R. R. Martin uh, moves there, too, where they, no. they'll put a prince on a plane and say, you're going to Cairo, and then you end up in Riyadh anyway, and taking another guy out of a, in a medical vac uh, airplane. I mean, it's yeah, but, and after, after, like After this this coup that happened, uh, Mohammed bin Salman was still uh, more or less okay with them being opposing him. I mean, the, the, the princes who are now locked on, on, uh, under house arrest or detained or whatever you want to call them, uh, they were actually against this move and they publicly announced it and they were somehow trying to uh, maybe take allegiance from certain tribes to say that we don't want Muhammad bin Salman to be the crown prince because if he comes, he's going to remain there for the next 50 or 60 years as the king of uh, Saudi Arabia and he might do whatever and he might kill whoever. And, uh, and Muhammad bin Salman was just waiting for the right time and the right time came that exact week, the first uh, week of November because of a very specific event, which is the event where he announced the Niyom, the Niyom investment city that he's planning to build and get it up and running by 2030, which needs huge amounts of money because he's thinking that he wants to do a city that that resembles the city uh, in the movie Minority Report, for example. He wants like everything to be perfect. So he got all it's very investments, clever, well, all investors. <laughs> he got all he the investors all the into the country. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, because the question is, how was he able to get all of these princes, very influential princes, in Riyadh at the same time? It was that investment event that he made. He even had international, famous international uh, investors and entrepreneurs come to Saudi Arabia. He had this lavish event in the Ritz-Carlton, and then when everything ended, he was like, mm, I'm keeping them there. And that's what he did. He kept them there. He, he actually he summoned them back to the Ritz-Carlton. He turned it into something that resembles Abu Ghraib from Iraq. And then he put them there. And we have no idea what's going on there and why, why he closed it down. How, I mean, I, it's, it's confusing. It's leave, crazy. Right? It's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, they, they actually... They I have actually, a theory. Yes, demanded the guests to leave. I think is, he was up late one night. He's watching The Godfather where they all go to the opera to see one of the mob members sing so he knows all, yeah. the whole families are going to be there and they rent the helicopter and just start shooting them all down. He's like watching The Godfather. He's like, this is what I'll do. I'll have them all come to the convention for my future tech city and then I'll just start arresting everybody. Like, 
this is a real mad king. This is exactly what he did. It's it's laughable, but it's this, I mean, that's what's happening on the ground. It's beyond crazy. We cannot fathom the thought of this man actually single-handedly bringing down the kingdom. Look, I'm not mad. I do want to see Al Saud leave, but I don't want to see the the people of Hejaz, the people of the Arabian Peninsula, killing one another because of him. We had enough killing because of him already. There are a lot of people inside of what is called the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is which is named after one family. How crazy can that be? But there are a lot of people who are from Hejaz and Najd who refuse to be part of this, who refuse the killing on their, on their brothers and sisters in Yemen, who refuse the sort of theft of their own wealth. Why should they be under the control of this family? What kind of a law says that this is how things should happen? And I think that he is pushing for some sort of an uprising, but it's not going to be a nice or pleasant one. A lot of people are going to be killed because of the the irrational behavior and decision-making process. There's not even a process. It's decision-making upon what he chooses to eat, maybe. I don't know. And he's just (laughs) taking these decisions that are really really risky, that are uh, putting the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people under risk. And he's ready to start a war with anyone at any time. He's just out of control. Someone needs to put a leash on that man. I wonder if he's mentally ill or something because I don't know how else you hatch something like this unless – it seems like a child is in control of the kingdom or something. Like a little kid would think like this, like yes. a, a like an evil nine-year-old just be like, I'll just kill that guy. And, uh, they don't understand that uh, even with all the looting and corruption in Saudi Arabia, that maybe, no, there's no billionaires without the state. There's all state nepotism and stealing and so on and so on. But a lot of that money is invested in legit – you know, international businesses that do provide products and services that do, you know, better human life around the globe. And you can't just yank it out and make your future city or whatever he's dreaming about and or shoot helicopters out of the air. Well, that helicopter, the prince in the helicopter, that that was hit by a jet, right? It wasn't like a surface uh, there or something. It was – no, no. I think it – um what what uh, was out there the us actually uh the the uh, i i don't know which kind of a us admin uh, institution but it was an official us institution i don't know if it was the foreign uh secretary or it was the white house i can't really remember right now but we can definitely find it but the thing is it was issued by the us that and by israel it was israel the first who who said what happened they said that uh there was a word warplane a saudi warplane that actually hit uh, with a missile that helicopter but right. we don't have evidence because no well, one said anything from saudi arabia i doubt it was that then if israel's jumped out to control the narrative and they're the first ones to say this is what we're going to say then i have to wait for some other evidence because they do nothing but lie well, although they've been partners in crime with the saudis you know financing these Groups you know, know, there was a lot of experts who, who looked at the wreckage of that plane and they, uh, most of them actually uh, agreed that it was a missile that hit it. Hmm. It was a, a, a missile that, 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 like the one that could be used on, on board of a warplane that hit because it was like nothing was left, absolutely nothing. It was a wreckage that with dust and a couple of, of metallic, metallic uh, and nothing, nothing, there were no remains. The point is, it leads back to the state. It's not like some terrorist just has has one of those in his backyard. Like, let me get my F-15 and then uh, blow up a helicopter. And 
Yeah, so it leads back to the state. It's why make such a paper trail and the stunt with. So right now, Hariri, you were saying he's in a meeting with the president. Side. Well, uh, before we started our interview, there was uh, more than 15 minutes before we started our interview, there was a breaking news that said that the Lebanese president, uh, President Michel Aoun, was having a close meeting with uh, Prime Minister Saad Hariri and Parliament Speaker Nabih Berri. And uh, during that day, he had a lot of meetings with a lot of the uh, heads of political blocs in Lebanon. So basically, they are cooking something. We don't know what it is, but most probably that it is the final stage of Saad Hariri finally taking his resignation out of, uh, of place. I don't think Saad Hariri is going to resign. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not. But even if he does, it just would mean that everything would continue normally, and we will just wait until the upcoming elections because no one has spoken about uh, getting the elections closer or doing them at a, a closer time than uh, than before May 2018. I think they're going to stay for May 2018 because there are a lot of logistic uh, options that need to be put in place because of the new electoral law. It's not it's not something that we are used to. So a lot of things have to happen before the actual elections happen. So even if he resigns, which I think is not it's now just behind our back, that's not going to happen. But even if he does, it's just going to be us waiting for the elections. And uh, he, he has more chances than anyone else to be named prime minister again. Hmm. I have a final question just because I like rubbing their nose in it. Uh, some uh, people are afraid that Israel is gearing up to reinvade Lebanon, and there's just zero chance of that. But I'd just like you to to explain why the Israelis aren't going to risk another invasion. I'll tell you something. You know that wall that Donald Trump is building on the border with Mexico? Mm -hmm. Well, Israel is building a similar one. They are actually building one to keep themselves safe as if like we're gonna attack. But they say that they they actually started building it. They, they're gonna build it between Nakura, which is the uh, most, uh, the Western uh, tip of the border with uh, Shaba, which is the uh, far uh, Eastern point of the border all across the Lebanese occupied Palestinian border. These people are, are so afraid of the upcoming war because they know that the military capabilities of Hezbollah that has grown so fast over the past five years since their involvement in Syria, which led them to liberate swaths of land that are literally equal to the borderline between Lebanon and Syria on the other Lebanese border with Syria, uh, I mean, that equals the border between Lebanon and occupied Palestine, Hezbollah was able to liberate a, a, a location or geographic area that is equal to that distance in Arsal, from Daesh, ISIS, and from Nusra in three days. Mm -hmm. Three days. So I wonder how fast they will get into the higher Jalili, Jalil al-A'la. How fast Hezbollah will be able to liberate Palestinian land for the first time in history if Israel tries anything. Look, whether they try it or not, let things be very clear, the main goal of the resistance in Lebanon and in Palestine is to take the hand of the occupation of the Palestinian land. I'm not saying that Hezbollah would start anything with Israel, but any stupid step made by them, it will be the last step they make. And I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm just saying it. I, I'm saying it because 
Hezbollah has proven capability. Hezbollah has liberated swaths of land that equals the entire uh, um, Lebanese uh, geographical area times five inside of Syria. Look at the map. Just get that map and look at it and look at the size of Lebanon. Five times that size, Hezbollah was able to liberate within three years. Come on, Israelis, wake up. They didn't too, fare too well in the 2006 war either. They had tanks burning in the desert. Exactly. I think one of their ships got sunk as well, though they wouldn't admit it. Yes. That was and a beautiful sight to see. Yeah. Yeah, it was about 40 days, 41 day war or something. And the. Oh, no, it was 33 days. 33 days. It was a 33 okay. day war. And on the first week, they had one of their uh, ships sinking. That's right. They beta tested. The excuse was, uh, oh, they kidnapped our soldiers. And they used the word kidnap, not capture. I don't know how you kidnap a soldier. but And they, and they had just done the same thing with Palestine. They said Palestinians kidnapped two Israeli soldiers. Yeah. Never did get those two back, by the way. Um, so, yeah, what a disaster. But this was Oded Yanan's plan, as we were saying in the beginning of this talk, where Oded Yanan is an Israeli strategist, and he was writing out how he wanted to do to Syria what had been done in Lebanon, referring to the 1975 five-party civil war. And they wrote all this out. They said, well, before we do this, we're going to have to take out Iraq first. That was done. So they're just following this script. And uh, because of Hezbollah and also Russian air support, the empire died in Syria because 30 years of Israeli planning went down the toilet in the matter of, a, of about True. four months once the U.S. cut off uh, aid to the terrorists, finally. Yeah, Trump's a Zionist, but he's yeah. also anti-Al-Qaeda. He's more anti-Al-Qaeda than he is pro-Israel, and so he cut off their money, and they fell apart within a few and, months. And well, yes, but at the same time, you have to take into consideration that there are not uh, not that much of a huge number of U.S. presence in the region as they did actually uh, have before uh, Barack Obama took out the, the soldiers from the region. I mean, how many soldiers do they have in Syria? How much of the capability do these soldiers have by giving coordinates to whether ISIS or Nusra? How much can you actually have a herd of, of idiots, of Neanderthals fight for you, which they don't know what they are doing? And at the end of the day, the only thing that they want is more women and more money. It's obvious it was a lost cause, but I don't know what got into their head and made them do it. But basically what you said was perfectly right. It was the Israeli push for that plan in the region for them to expand and take control of, of the region. And the last one, the last straw that was hit so hard was the so-called uh, Kurdish referendum, which Israel was pushing and pushing hard for. And then they it crumbled within two hours. Yes, yes. Two hours, the Iraqi army went into Kirkuk and bye-bye for that referendum. The Peshmerga was gone within 36 hours. They had, had taken, uh, effectively taken every major city, any territory of any importance, which also deleveraged the Kurdish uh, factions within Syria and the SDF. Uh, that, you know, you know they wanted a Kurdish state. And the U.S. said, look, if we have to pick between the Turks and the Kurds, Turkey offers a lot more, so... Double cross, here it comes. Salt should have seen it coming. Yeah. They didn't see it coming. Like America's loyal. We told to them. They refused to listen. This is like the fourth time in history that the U.S. does this to them, and they yeah. still 
put their hopes up high by actually believing uh, the, the, the U.S. imperialist, colonialist mentality. I mean, come on, come on, people, just wake up. Your They're future is right here. You are serious. Why would you do that? So I, I think, look, there is a capability for a political solution inside of Syria that would include the Kurds, but they should just wake up and stay away from what's causing this fire. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's already starting to happen in Iraq. You have different Kurds taking positions in the power. It's just you got you can't want an ethnic state. I don't care if it's a Kurdish state or a white nationalist state or a Jewish state or a whatever state. You know, states are based on ideology, and everyone's welcome to live. You can't have an exclusively like racial or ethnic state that's just going to piss off all your neighbors and stuff it's like it just doesn't this is the real world people and so yeah kurds will be welcome to be in the political process they just won't be the, the racist brand that are very akin to like zionist cousins because that's what israel does you know and israel is uh really sitting there with their dick in the wind because they just spent three and a half billion dollars on this pipeline deal with cyprus and they lost 77 percent of their oil imports when the benchmark were pushed out and so they need to pull some kind of stunt and so they always work through proxies wars by deception so now you see the perfume princes acting up and on this whole scandal yeah. with the Riri. So too we'll late, see how it plays out. What's that? Oh, yeah. So it's too late, I think. It is too late. It's done. I'm, I can't stop eating popcorn. I, like, I have no sympathy for these billionaires popping each other off I'm like, because they're all just scum anyway. They're just lower than goat shit. And uh, watching them you know, blow each other up and arrest each other, I was like, this is better than than a film like it because i've been waiting for this my whole life like i don't want it to erupt i don't want all their followers I know, I know, but, I'm, other, I'm but if the though. leadership can can just jail each other and i can understand other, that but i i can say something uh, ryan that i am concerned for the security of uh, the people of the arabian peninsula i'm very much concerned and the way that they are working so fast towards a normalization with the israeli entity it's just, I mean, I mean, they literally, Mohammed al-Salaam is not even looking back. He's seeing the wall and he's saying, I'm going to come and bang my head to that wall. And I'm afraid that bang is not going to be only confined to his head. I, 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 I hope not. I hope it's only confined to his head, but I don't think, I don't think that's the case. I don't want it to spread, but it's been spreading anyway, and it seems like it's finally going to have some kind of conclusion. Like the Israelis and Saudis have been working together since 1976. Uh, when the Americans brokered the Safari Club and broke up o o OPEC after the Yom Kippur and blah, 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 long history. But they've all been there. That's the real axis of evil, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States. And all these relationships are starting yeah. to come apart. The U.S. is still close to Israel, but, you know, relative to how close they were before, even that's starting to tether. So... And the U.S. public is big on Saudi Arabia. You had the declassified 28 pages showing they were sponsoring 9-11 hijackers. So that can't last. It's unsustainable. And it's, it, the empire died in Syria. Like the, the good guys are finally going to win. <laughs> That's what it seems like. I want to thank you for your time. You've got uh, your, your baby there. So I will let you go. I'll talk to you again in the future. And I really enjoyed having you on the program. Uh, wish you thank you for having me. And thank you, thank you for having us, actually. Say thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us on your show. Uh, we'd love to be back at any time. And thank you for the effort that you're doing. We need voices like yours uh, for, for the people to know what's going on in the Middle East. So thank you.